All right, so this morning uh, we come to the conclusion of our study in Bibliology, the doctrine of the Scriptures, by looking at the fourth characteristic of Scripture, which is the sufficiency of Scripture. We've talked about authority, we've talked about clarity, necessity. This morning we'll finish up with sufficiency. Now, as you can see there on your notes, I've broken this lesson up into two points, which covers all of life. First, we're going to look at the sufficiency of Scripture as it pertains to those outside the church, that is, in evangelism. Now, certainly, there's going to be overlap there. We're going to see things, obviously, that we're encouraged by, that we're continuing to learn as well. Um, As we bear witness to people about the truth of who God is and this world that He's made and He governs, we, we have a sufficient testimony in the Word of God to bear witness to them. And then secondly, we're going to look at the sufficiency of Scripture inside the church, that is, as it pertains to the edification of God's people, of us being built up uh, in the faith. Now, before we launch into those two points, I want to kind of give you the base text that I'm going to be working from this morning, and that's 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17 where Paul was inspired to say this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with these sacred writings, okay, so the scriptures, which are able or sufficient to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So there's that first aspect of the sufficiency of scripture being sufficient to make us wise unto salvation. And then this next part goes on, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, so there we see the ongoing nature of the sufficiency of Scripture. After we come to salvation, it's the Scriptures that are sufficient to grow us into that salvation that we have entered into. So let's go ahead and launch now into this first point, the sufficiency of Scripture outside the church. And what I want to do here is just focus on a series of questions that I've kind of thought through, that I've laid out there for you on your notes. And so I want to think through it from this perspective. Are the Scriptures sufficient for an unbeliever to know who God is? Are they sufficient to know how we got here, what our origin is? Are they sufficient to tell us who we are as humans? What our purpose is, that is, why God created us? Are they sufficient to tell us why the world is in the state that it's in right now? Are they sufficient to tell us what God has been doing in the world and what he is doing? And are they sufficient to tell us where all of this is headed? And I would answer with a big hearty yes to all of those questions, that they are sufficient for every aspect of life, that the scriptures are sufficient to answer all of these affirmatively. And I want to add to that, that if we seek to add anything to the scriptures, we will only distort reality rather than enhance it, as some have tried to do. So let's look at how the scriptures answer these questions that all seem to ask, all people seem to ask in one form or another. So 
Uh, this will be a little bit um, of an evangelistic training as well as talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. This is something that I hope that you can use if you ever have opportunity to sit down with somebody and lay out for them the big picture of the Bible, okay, starting in Genesis and working all the way through Revelation. Now, this by no means is an exhaustive list. There's tons of things that you could add into this, but I hope it just gives you a framework that you can think through. When I go up to somebody with a Bible in my hand, do I need anything else to bear witness to them about life and about the truth of who we are and who God is and what he's done in Christ and where all of this is headed? Okay, so let's look at that first question. How did we get here? How did we get here? The Bible's sufficient to answer this. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We see this reiterated in John 1.3 regarding Jesus. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then Paul is inspired to testify in Colossians 1. For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Okay? Now, there's other passages that you can bring into that, but just looking at these three passages, we can see that the scriptures are sufficient to tell us how we got here, how everything got here. Second, the scriptures are sufficient to tell us who we are. Somebody read Genesis 1.27 here. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created male and female, he created them. Okay. So we see here that we were created in the image of God. Right? This is what makes us unique from all other living things that God created. We alone bear the image of God. And additionally, we see this text answers the question about sexuality, that God created man, both male and female. So the scriptures are sufficient to tell us who we are as humans, right? We just look back here at Genesis 1, and we come to a passage like this, and think of how this clears up all the obscurity that we have going on, especially in our day with all this talk that's going on on multiple levels about sexuality and are we men, are we women, and so on and so forth. And we go right back to the first chapter of the Bible, and here we have it laid out sufficiently for us to tell us these things. Okay, third, the scriptures are sufficient to tell us what our purpose is. Okay, going on in the next verse here. Somebody want to read that for us? God blessed them. And God says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, so here we have again being created in the image of God. Man was given the commission to multiply which would be to spread the image of God throughout all the earth. And he was also told here to rule, to have dominion over the rest of creation. And in this way, he would be reflecting the image of God's rule, that is, his dominion over all things. Okay? And we, we can kind of sum this up by looking at it this way. Man was created to know God, to be in fellowship with him 
right? And to make him known throughout the earth. Okay? So, again, here you have, in the first chapter of the Bible, the answer to the questions of how we got here, who we are, and what our purpose is. Right? I mean, just think about what that answer is foundationally for all of humanity. Those are questions that people are constantly trying to figure out, trying to answer at one level or another. So the scripture is sufficient to answer those fundamental questions. And then going on here, we see that Adam and Eve didn't last long in their created state and did not fulfill the commission that was given to them. Okay, want to read with you a passage of scripture. It's a little lengthy, but it's helpful to understand this point here. So go with me to Genesis chapter 3. And maybe I can get a couple people to jump in and read. Genesis chapter 3. Who would be willing to read verses 1 through 7 for us? Thank you. Genesis 3, 1 through 7, and then also Genesis 3, 8 through 19. Who would be willing to read that? Jeremy, thanks. Okay. All right, Forrest, if you want to take verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden you may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make her wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves one coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and 
he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. All right, good, thank you. Now, there's tons, obviously, that we can say here. But what I want to just briefly mention as we look at this passage of kind of the key elements that we see here. We see the serpent's temptation to come along and to seek to undermine the word of God, the command that was given to them. And then we see man's disobedience, man's rebellion against God. And then God placing that curse that comes upon man and the rest of creation. So as we think about that aspect of what happened, okay, why, why is the world the way it is now, we look back to Genesis 3, and here we have the answer. So those first four questions you have answered within those first three chapters of the Bible. You can help somebody see. So the scriptures are sufficient to tell us about these things. Rather than resisting that temptation to disobey the clear command that God had given, Man turns against his creator and believes the lie of the rebellious creature. And here again, the scriptures are sufficient to show us what happened to this beautiful, harmonious world in which Adam and Eve were created. Okay? And then that brings us to the fifth question that the scriptures are sufficient to answer. And that is, why is the world the way it is now? Okay? So, did, did that have an effect Adam's rebellion against God, did that have an effect upon everything else? And we see there that in the curse that was pronounced, it absolutely did have an effect on that. As we look at and we see what happened in Genesis 3, we see that one act of rebellion plunges all Adam's offspring into a state of total depravity. That is, that mankind inherits this sinful nature from Adam and he also inherits a state of condemnation before God. Let me show you a few passages that, that deal with this. Okay? Romans 5, 18 through 19, referring to Adam here in verse, verses 18 and 19. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19. By the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. Okay, going on, Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, if somebody can read that for us. As it is written, none is righteous, but not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All are turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does give them even one. Okay, so there's Paul's testimony, right, as he's starting in Romans 1 and he's talking about the Gentiles' rebellion against God and moving into Romans 2 and talking about the Jews' rebellion against God. And here he summarizes it, both Jew and Gentile. Here it is. Here's the summation of it. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So that one act of rebellion had massive implications upon all humanity. And it answers the question, 
why is the world the way it is right now, right? Children don't come into the world with a blank slate, with the ability to say, I'm going to walk in obedience toward God or I'm going to walk in disobedience toward God. They come in corrupt, disobedient, walking in the way of sin. And the consequence of that in Romans 5.12 is this. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Okay, so as we think about the applicability of this, think about the current events over even just this last week in our country and throughout the world, as we've seen what's gone on in recent days throughout the world. We see afresh the depravity of man that has been on display since Cain killed Abel in Genesis 4. Man is at war with man because man is at war with God. That's the issue. Man hates man because man hates God. Listen to these sobering descriptions here. Somebody want to read this for us? Romans 1, verses 28 through 31. Just the, the, the plainness with which the word of God speaks, right? You got up and say, here's, here's the indictment against humanity. Let me read this for you. That, that wouldn't last too long <laughs> in most circles, but that's the reality of it. And hopefully as you read that, you see yourself in there in some context as an unbeliever, right? We don't want to be like, oh, that, none of that really describes me. Yeah, you're in there. I'm in there. We're all in there. And that's the reality of it. Notice this haters of God. And you may not have gone around saying, I hate God, you know, when you were an unbeliever, but your rebellion against him declared it. And that's what the scriptures testify to. Good. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Remind them, so Paul giving Titus instruction about the believers there, in Crete especially, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now why? For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Right? So that's, that's who we once were. Why the world is in the state that it's in right now is because man is in rebellion to God. Right? And the scriptures are sufficient to lay that out, to help us to see that. And again, the implications of this, you can, you can take current events that are happening and sit down with somebody and say, let me explain to you 
why things are the way they are right now, why mankind behaves the way that he does. And let me show you also what happens when God transforms a heart. You take him to the Apostle Paul or something like that. This is a good description of him. So the scriptures are sufficient, again, to explain why things are the way they are right now. Now, what we've looked at, especially in these last two points, it's pretty dark and grim as we think about the implications of that, but it's not all hopeless, right? God is doing something, and God has been doing something since the fall that we looked at back in Genesis 3, and this answers the sixth question there on your notes. What has God been doing throughout the history of the world, and what is he doing now? Again, if you've walked in um, a little bit later, this is by no means an exhaustive list. You can add tons of scripture to what I have here. This is just kind of a structure for us to think through these things. As we think back to Genesis 3 that we read a little bit earlier, sandwiched into that curse is this beautiful promise in Genesis 3.15 that one would come who would bruise or crush the head of the serpent, which ultimately means this one would come and undo the curse and restore all things. And that one, that offspring of the woman, is our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15 says, if somebody can read that for us. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Okay, that's a, that's a great passage. He comes in human form. They partook of flesh and blood. He did the same, and he did so to the end that he might destroy death and the one who has the power of death. 1 John 3.8 states it very simply. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Okay, so as we look back at Genesis, we see that this is the one that was foretold would come and undo what Adam did. And how he did this was through his sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his triumphant resurrection. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. Somebody want to read that for us? Okay, so, so think about the, the, the aspect of that. He's born of woman, so he comes as a man. He's born under the law. He's subject to it, and he does so for this purpose, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay, so the scriptures testify and declare the sinlessness of the Son of God. Okay, listen to this passage here. Somebody want to read this for us? John 8, 26 through 29. Jesus in a discussion with the, with the Jews here. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them. 
about the Father. But Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Okay, so there's, there's the sinlessness of the Son of God declared. John 8, 29 is like one of my favorite passages. Jesus testifies, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Anybody say that? No. Anybody say that after a, a day is over? No. Right? Thoughts, words, deeds were constantly erring and sinning against the Lord and begging for grace. And Jesus stands alone and he says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That is the basis of your righteousness before God. That's what you stand upon. You stand in the sun so that you are seen in this way. And what hope that that brings. Jesus was tested and yet he testifies, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So we see the sinlessness of the Son of God there, 2 Corinthians 5.21, popular passage here. For our sake, He, that is God, made Him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. Again, these are, these are weighty statements here. And they help us to see the work of Christ on our behalf. And then one more passage here, if somebody can read this, Hebrews 4.15. For you do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with your weaknesses. One who in every respect is particular as we are, yet without sin. Okay, so there again we see the constant declaration of Scripture. He is the sinless one. The one who would come and earn our righteousness. But we not only needed him to earn our righteousness through his perfect life, we also needed him to take away our condemnation, to die for us. And that's what this next portion deals with. So look with me at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Okay, again, just contextually where this falls, in Romans 1.18 through Romans 3.20, Paul is laying out this indictment against all of humanity. Jew and Gentile, all are condemned, right? And then, he starts in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, so here's where we're dealing with the, the death of Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation, 
as a wrath-bearing substitute by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is how we answer the question of how can a holy God forgive sinful people without overthrowing his justice? If he just overlooks our sins and doesn't deal with it and just says, you know what, you did sin, but I'm just going to overlook it and let you into my presence. He would be unjust because he's not dealing with that sin. And so he puts Christ on display and he says, here's how I feel about sin. Here's how heinous it is. And you see the justice of God on display at the cross simultaneously with his mercy extended to us. Jesus is punished for our sins. And that righteousness that he earned through his perfect life is also credited to us. Romans 8, verses 1 through 4 says it in a similar way. If somebody can read that for us up on the screen or the wall, actually, on screen. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Okay, so what could the law not do for us? It could not pronounce us righteous, right? As a matter of fact, it does just the opposite. It pronounces us guilty. It condemns us. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And how did he do it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, or as a sin offering, he condemned sin in the flesh. In whose flesh? Flesh of the Son of God. Okay. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So again, you have this imputation by God. Our sins go to Christ. His righteousness comes to us. And then finally, the Scriptures declare the resurrection of Christ. And I tie this back in with Genesis. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So there again you have that representation. You're in Adam, you die. You're in Christ, you're coming up out of the grave. If the Lord doesn't return before we leave this earth. That's the promise that we have. Now, 
what has God been doing since the resurrection of Christ is making all things new, restoring all things. This is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, when he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you're in Christ, you have entered into the new creation that ultimately will be consummated when the Lord returns and establishes the new heaven and the new earth. That's the promise that we have. That's what he's been doing. So we are already new creatures in Christ Jesus. Not what we will fully be, as John says in 1 John 3. We don't know what we will be completely, but we know that when he appears, we shall see him as he is, and we will be like him. That's what's going to happen. And then in Revelation 21.5, Jesus testifies, And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Okay? So that's, what, that's what's happening now. The scriptures are sufficient for us to explain what God has been doing in the world since the fall, what he accomplished through the person and work of Christ, and how that's been applied for the last 2,000 years of church history and what he is still doing today. He is in the process of restoring all things. The scriptures are sufficient for us to testify to that. And then finally in this section, the scriptures are sufficient to answer the question, where is all this headed? Where is all this headed? And how the scriptures answer that is it's headed to the day of judgment when Christ returns and consummates his kingdom and creates a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. And I'm just going to point you to one portion of scripture that deals with this, summarizes it. Revelation chapter 20, go ahead and turn there with me. Starting at verse 11. And we'll read through Revelation 21, 4. Okay, Revelation 20, starting in verse 11, reading through Revelation 21, 4. Scripture says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. 
Hallelujah. That's where all of this is headed to, is this day of judgment before Christ and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. So you can look at those and see how the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation clearly lay out for us as we bear witness to others all that is necessary for us to understand life. As Desmond said last week, the scriptures aren't sufficient to figure out trigonometry or something along those lines, but they are sufficient to answer the main things that people need to know about God and how to live in a way that is pleasing to Him. Okay? So again, I hope you can use that as an opportunity to bear witness to somebody. Perhaps you could pray and ask the Lord to give you an opportunity to, uh, to speak to someone about the whole of Scripture that we see there in Genesis to Revelation. Okay? All right, before we move on to the next section, questions, comments? I know I kind of went through that quickly, but... Okay, well, let's, let's look now at this next section, which is the sufficiency of Scripture inside the church. In other words, after we become Christians... Are there other things that we need to add? Is the scripture still sufficient in our sanctification, in our building up, in our being conformed into the image of Christ? And here again, I would add a hearty yes and amen. And what I want to drive home here is that the scriptures are adequate. They're sufficient for, for conforming each one of us into the image of God, which is the goal of God for every Christian. Now, back in this passage that we looked at earlier in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, and we saw in verse 17, Paul says here that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, the man of God referred to here would be pastors within local congregations. Scripture alone is what they need. The power of the Holy Spirit, obviously, to teach, rebuke, correct, and train in righteousness. And it is sufficient for him as well as for us because this is the basis upon which pastors teach. It's the word of God to the people so that they would be built up in the faith. And I want to say this, that this, this edification, this being conformed into the image of Christ, it happens on two levels. And I just kind of define this as the macro level and the micro level. By the macro level, I mean as we sit under the preaching and the teaching of God's word in formal settings like this one or when we go into the main service. That's what I mean when I say a macro level. And they're also sufficient in a micro level. And by that, I mean as we gather together individually one-on-one -on -one, okay, or one-on-few, the word of God is sufficient there in our conversations and thinking about life and thinking through issues. We need not and we ought not search for something more as we congregate together and as we meet up in smaller settings. The Word of God ought to be preeminent in all situations for instructing us. And here is why. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. If somebody wants to read that for us. 
knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and goodness, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sin Amen. I love what author Ed Bulkley said about this passage, and I quote, he says, God has indeed provided every essential truth the believer needs for a happy, fulfilling life in Christ Jesus. It is the belief that God has not left us lacking in any sense. The Apostle Peter states it emphatically, and note the word here, or the words that he uses, all things. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Bulkley goes on and he says, God has provided absolutely everything man needs for life. God has given us all the information we need to function successfully in this life. Every essential truth, every essential principle, every essential technique for solving problems, growing in godliness, has been delivered in God's word. So everything that we need to become partakers of the divine nature has been provided for us in his precious and very great promises which are found in the word of God. Everything we need for sanctification is available to us. You know, you think about the power of the word of God in your life as a believer. That it alone can reveal the hidden motives of our hearts. Right? Hebrews 4.12 The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's a great passage. The sufficiency of scripture to do that. I love what author Elise Fitzpatrick had to say about this. She says, Only the mirror of the word has the power to enlighten blind eyes to motives and attitudes. Even the most sensitive and discerning of counselors cannot judge or absolutely know the heart. Nothing reveals hidden motives and intentions but the word, which is sufficient for godly change. That's a great statement. You know, you think of how true that is as we interact with one another. And at times, uh, for various reasons, we're not as real with one another or, or as open with one another as we may need to be. But our comfort lies in this fact that even if there are things that are, we're not revealing to each other that we ought to so that we can help each other adequately, the Word of God spoken to each other in those times when we interact can expose and bring healing even when we that person didn't reveal to us what it is that they're struggling with. That's the power of the Word of God. And that's why it ought to be what we fellowship around at all times. And then the last passage that I want to look up to help us see the sufficiency of Scripture within the church is Colossians 3, verses 12 through 16. So go ahead and turn there with me. If I can have somebody read that for us, whoever gets there first can do so. Colossians 3, 
verses 12 through 16. Sabrina, thanks. I want you to notice there that this is how we're to live as the people of God, as those whom God has called out of this world and into the body of Christ. And notice in verse 16, we're to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And notice to what end? So that we can teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Not most wisdom, not The scriptures are sufficient for 95% of the wisdom that you need to live a life of godliness and then another 5% you're going to have to go and get that from somewhere else. All the wisdom that we need to live a life that glorifies God is bound up in His Word. And we need not look elsewhere and we should not look elsewhere for wisdom in how to live a life that is honoring to the Lord. So as we think about this study that we've gone through here over the last four months, I want to conclude with a stanza from the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, because I think it rightly sums up what we've been looking at in our time together throughout this study. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Amen? Amen. All right. Got two minutes for comments or questions. And if you do have any questions, remember the green box back behind Jeremy there on the table. Desmond and I will be doing the Q&A next Sunday. And uh, just real quickly, the format on that, we'll be going through the questions that you guys have submitted. There's been a lot of questions, a lot of good questions. I don't think we're going to have time to get to all of them, but Desmond and I will set up a time where we can answer those and post them on the website so everybody's question, if you submitted one, will get answered. Okay? All right, well, let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you. Uh, as we've studied today, the sufficiency of your word. Thank you that you have laid out for us how to understand who you are, how to understand who we are, how to understand what our purpose is on this earth, how to understand how everything went wrong and what you've been doing since then and restoring all things and making all things new. We bless your holy name and we thank you that we have been counted in the number of those who have been made new creatures in Christ Jesus. And Father, how we pray 
that we would be absolutely convinced that everything that we need for life and godliness is bound up in the Word of God. As your Spirit applies these things and opens our eyes to see its truth, please help us to be a people who are given to the Word of God for the profit of our own souls and for the profit of our fellowship together as we interact with each other in all things that you would be glorified. And so we thank you for this study. We've been edified and strengthened much. I pray that it would manifest itself in giving ourselves afresh to the Word. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.